0: This is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving, shaping, and challenging their fields and the world around them.
1: We are all being watched from our phones to our Facebook activity. Countless companies are turning our online behavior into data that can be analyzed and, in many cases, sold in order to target us with ads, predict our identities and interests, determine our creditworthiness, and even evaluate our propensity for committing crime. Some have even called data the new oil and have likened it to a raw resource that can be refined to produce insights for essentially controlling human behavior. Of course, surveillance is nothing new, but the techniques and breadth of this apparatus have expanded
0: to a pretty alarming degree. To discuss the dynamics of the data and surveillance economy, we're very, very pleased to be speaking with Sarita Amrute, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Washington and Director of Research at Data and Society, a think tank based in New York City that supports research about the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. So today, we'd love to start our questions by learning a bit, Sarita, about the story of how you arrived at studying tech and the tech industry as an anthropologist. You've described your scholarship as, quote, unsettling tech research, and we'd love to know what it means to unsettle inquiries into this area and how you became interested in doing this work.
2: Thank you, Marcel and Isabel. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Um, I'd like to start off by offering a land acknowledgement. We are now... Um, In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn um, on the lands of the Canarsie people, and I'm reminded of the fact that their pathways that later became Flatbush Avenue or Atlantic Avenue um, connect us all. And We're in a moment in which we need more social connectivity. And I think back to that historical legacy um, to honor that sense of connection to the land and to the people of this land. Um, I also want in this moment in particular to honor the immigrants, those who came here in bondage and those who came uh, later, sometimes fleeing prosecution, fleeing poor economic conditions and fleeing colonialism, who I think of every day. I think about how they make New York what it is. Um, Among them were my grandparents who lived in Queens, who had a shop in Manhattan. Um, And when I think about my own work, it's often in the spirit of Of my grandparents and what they brought to this city. Of course, I think about the immigrants who serve as healthcare workers in New York, who deliver things to our front doors, um, all these black and brown people who are helping us through. And I want to think about them as I talk with you today. So this question asked me on how I got to studying tech as an anthropologist. It's amazing because I didn't really start off as a tech anthropologist. I started as an anthropologist of migration and the migrant experience. And I was drawn to anthropology in, when I was in grad school in the late 90s and the 2000s because anthropology itself was experiencing this really interesting opening up and widening, widening out. So for a very long time, since the inception of anthropology in the 19th century, anthropology really was the handmaiden, one of many handmaidens of colonialism. Anthropology was about white men going to the colonies, studying brown and black others and bringing back knowledge that would help the rulers of empire rule the country better. And they were joined in this enterprise by biologists, botanists, linguists, surveyors, missionaries, medical men who were steeped in eugenics and race science, who all set about learning about the colonies in order to rule them and the people of the colonies. As Marcel, you know this story really well, but um, it's one that bears repeating. And I think anthropology, after that colonial experience did begin to wrestle with the legacies of race science, eugenics, and anthropology's place in it, first in the 20s and 30s through the work of Franz Boas, uh, and then Zora Neale Hurston, St. Clair Drake, and Ella Deloria. But but even after that moment, um, Zora Neale Hurston, Ella Deloria, they were largely written out of the discipline of anthropology. And anthropology kept being about white men, mostly, increasingly women, going to paces they thought as savage and understanding those people as a mirror to themselves. But you know, in the 80s and the 90s, there was a new moment. There was a moment in which anthropologists started asking different kinds of questions. They started turning their lenses on um, developments happening, happening everywhere in the world. And there were all sorts of enth- ethnographic experiments. Um, one, of the, one of which that was very important to me, I came really through my mentors, Arjuna Padurai, Jean Comroff, and Michelle Rolf Trio was to ask this question of who is allowed to ask questions about what? So we really wanted to turn this paradigm of white experts studying about brown people on its head. And we wanted to ask what happens when non-Western, non-white researchers study the West? And so instead of studying my own culture, which would have been studying um, India, I invented this little project where I went and studied in Germany, and it was a very strange experience. My expertise on German thought, German culture was continually questioned, even though I'm fluent in German, which is a skill I just picked up through studying the language. It's it's pretty close to English, so it's really not that hard to learn. Um, But it was a very, very eye-opening experience for me being in Germany and studying this project on German immigration policy. And so it kind of happened that that immigration policy I was studying, which at the time was somewhat obscure, became really, really important in the tech industry. So it was a specific visa regulation to get part-time workers to Germany to work in tech, mostly in coding or debugging projects. And then they would go back to their home country, right? They called it a German green card, but we would think of it much more like an H-1B visa. So I entered the space of tech kind of through a side door. And because of that, I was really able to ask different sorts of questions about the tech industry that became central to my work and I think are still really, really important. Um, Because I think in general, there's a little bit There was, and maybe there still is, a little bit of a kind of fetishistic myopia that Mars studies of tech. Um, And it comes from the fact that most studies of tech focus exclusively on centers of power in tech economies. um, And they also often mostly center stories of white Anglo men in tech's development. So when I talk about unsettling tech research, and that term unsettle is something I learned from two other anthropologists, uh Jarimar Bonilla and Jonathan Rosa, I mean I mean the following. I mean, I want to unsettle the continual process. Um, I I kind I kind of want to engage in a process of decentering what, who, and where is considered central to narratives about technologies. And also I want to ask the question of who is allowed to tell what kinds of stories about tech, why this is the case and what the consequences of these kinds of stories and how they're told are. So to be a little bit more concrete and to talk about just one consequence, as tech research, became more um, concerned with the harms perpetrated against communities of color. And this is this is something that we often call the tech lash, kind of a backlash against the tech industry. So this started happening um, in the last five or 10 years. The way the problem is mostly framed and mostly still framed is always one of victims of harm. In other words, Black and brown people, right as victims of harm, waiting to be saved by tech's good Samaritans and that framing really does not acknowledge the way that black, brown indigenous people come up with their own very sophisticated analyses, critiques of particular technologies have that they have their own epistemologies and ontologies about tech, and it also doesn't acknowledge that the very forces that make some people able to help the accumulation of riches, cultural capital, and so on, are those that impoverish other communities in the first place. So that's kind of what I mean by unsettled. Those are the fundamental questions that I want to ask. Who gets to tell what kinds of stories and what other kinds of stories are out there that aren't being told about the tech industry?
1: I'm curious, like as a, as a follow-up to that, if, if you could maybe talk a bit more about your research in India, which, I mean, mean, your research in Germany, which became um, your first book in coding race and coding class. Can you talk a bit more about what that, what that study was about? And I guess how the idea of unsettling perhaps was woven into your approach and your research methodology and your analysis of um, tech workers in, in Germany?
2: Yeah, the book, um, you know, as you both know, writing is not something that just happens. You sit down your desk, at your desk one day and suddenly this thing pops out. It's a labor of love, for sure. <laughs> Don't we wish? Don't we wish that that happens? It just like yeah, popped out, cool. just fully what formed? I feel that that's what we're taught about writing, which is such a mistake. Um, and it took me a long time to unlearn that. So it was a labor of love, and you go you go along in the field. What I was doing is I mostly collected stories from these temporary workers who were brought in. They were mostly all from India. Um, they were mostly from India. I don't exactly remember the percentage, but it was very high. I think ninety percent of the people who took these visas came were Indian citizens. They would work in German companies for a year, two years, and then their contract would expire. They were given a short amount of time to find another position or they automatically had to leave the country. They were mostly young in their 20s and most of them were from South India. So I spent most of my time interviewing the people who took those jobs, but as a good anthropologist, the interview always has to be contextualized. So I spent a lot of time with them not in the office, but at home, in parks, on the weekends, because the office was a really scary place for them to be. I mean, their entire job was contingent on whether or not their bosses thought they should be kept on for the length of the particular project they were hired for, hired for another project. So they were pretty reticent to be followed around with an anthropologist at work, and at first... I just felt like a huge impediment. I felt that I wasn't getting anywhere. And of course, I did spend a lot of time in workplaces, but not the same workplaces where the central characters of my ethnography were working, right? There was always a kind of um, purposeful divide between those two parts of the research. But for a long time, I thought I had come back from the field, as it were, with nothing, with a a Swiss cheese project. Until I started going over my notes and realizing that so much of what was important to the people who I was speaking with and developed friendships and relationships with was happening outside of the office. I mean, this is the amazing thing about immigrants and thinking with immigrants. They are ethnographers of their own lives. So my notebook was just filled with their own work of trying to sort out this world that they had entered And a lot of what they were trying to sort through was things like differential treatment in the office, uh, why they were given certain kinds of menial jobs versus others, but at the same time, everyone in the office really wanted to get to know them. They wanted to ask them about Indian food and Indian culture. And this was a contradiction. This was a really big paradox. And we know from the literature now that we we can think about this as a kind of post-racial racism, the way in which race isn't ever directly confronted. Everyone has these really liberal values. But at the same time, if you look at the organization of labor, there's a clear hierarchy and a clear divide. And if you look at the ability, the status, right, the status question, the ability of people to stay in the country, also a huge divide there. So I ended up writing a book that did a few things that I still think are really important, and they were unsettling to the standard narratives about tech. One, I wrote a book that was from the perspective of the back-end, back-room workers, the grunt workers who do the debugging work, not the engineers who, who write code that everyone recognizes and thinks of as a great contribution to the project um secondly i wrote a book about tech in which just as much if not more of the action and the narrative and the storytelling is happening outside of tech offices so i moved away from fetishizing the technology itself and i tried to think about the people working in these offices as people with complex and rich lives and three really importantly this is something i carry out throughout my work And I think this has changed since the book came out, but at the time when most people thought about tech or the tech industry, data, algorithms, programming, it was all completely disembodied. It was as if thinking about the digital meant that we could no longer think about embodied material conditions of life. But for these workers, they were confronted with They're they're very, you know, corporeal, material stuff every day when they stepped in the office and someone asked them a question about, uh, you name it, why Indians worship, worship monkeys, what the color red means. There was no getting out of the body for them. And so rather than thinking of that as a deficit or only as a deficit, I tried to make that embodied thing part of the argument part of what we want to learn about tech worlds is how they come to how different ideas about them how different infrastructures come to reside in differently shaped bodies yeah
1: i mean i think it's really really important and super powerful how you engage with power labor migration all is central to yeah understanding how the tech industry works and, and operates and how people are actually living out and playing out the materiality of their lives in these spaces. And I think it's this point you bring up too about this in disembodied way that you know tech is spoken about, I, I guess in like popular discourse, what I guess leads us to our second question um which is to these these very ideas about like big data and algorithms and ai these are terms that are coming up so frequently in just like the media in general um but you know even i mean for me even these terms are are something that are continue to be somewhat confounding um and not clear especially for those of us who don't work directly in tech so We were wondering if you could if we could maybe step back a bit and if you could help us define what these terms like big data and algorithms mean and in what ways does your scholarship engage with these with these
2: terms? Yeah, that that is such a profound question because I don't think it's an accident that the terms are confounding. To, to, To start with big data, big data is confounding because it's both a description of classifying and sorting projects but it is also uh to your research Marcel it's a it's a marketing term so it becomes super capacious it's a catch-all that's used to describe it's actually performative it does certain things in the world when you say big data and it's it's not a very Good term, honestly, because this is something that Dana Boyd and Kate Crawford have pointed out in a good article on this. It's not the size of the data that's the big. What's actually big about big data is the ability for data that we produce about our behavior to get collated, classified, and analyzed to make predictions about what we might do and actually nudge us or guide our behavior in certain ways. So very to take really concrete examples, when we go on a website and agree to the terms of service, one of the things that we're agreeing to is that our metadata, that is the data about what we're doing online, what sites we visit, how long we were on a site, all that stuff, We're agreeing for all of that to be collected and used for whatever, more or less whatever purpose the company wants to use it. And we have no choice but to sign those terms of service, because if you don't sign them, then you can't use the service. And this, I mean, I'm sure there are a million cases where this is brought home to you all the time, but given that we're sitting in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic and um, those of us with kids are teaching them from home, most of the online learning things that the city of New York is using is going through Google Classroom. And so in order for my kids to see their teacher, to see her, or the other kids in, her, in their classes, I had to make email accounts for them. And I know that already a digital profile is being built about my six-year-old and my eight-year-old, okay, that is being built and could be used in the future to target advertising or products at them that are based on patterns of behavior that they're producing now. And unless I decide that I don't want my kids to see their teacher, I actually don't really have any choice in the matter. So that, in a very concrete way, is... One aspect of big data. The other aspect, which should be clear from the description of kids education, right? That's the Department of Education for the city of New York making that decision. It isn't only corporate actors who collect all this information about us. It's also government actors. So every time we cross a border, we have information collected about us. Um, Every time a sensor picks up our license plate and is read, that information is collected about us. Um, And all of that information, the ability to aggregate it, to classify it, and analyze it is what we mean when we say big data. I still don't think it's a very good term because clearly as your question as your the questions you're asking me today point out there has been a very long history of data collection and classification and sometimes the term big data makes it seem even to the people with the best intentions that we're facing something entirely new for which we have to invent entirely new solutions part of it is new but part of it is very old i mean you could describe the british east india company as big data project, because it had this aspiration to be complete, to be completely thorough. It wanted to know about all the lands and people of the subcontinent, and also because of the way its classification systems became really, really consequential. They weren't used, you wouldn't call it prediction per se, but the categories that those data scientists, you know, in quotes, because they weren't called data scientists, produced became the categories through which the population was then later governed, and it affected everything from the way that votes uh, unrolled to um, different laws for different sections of the community based on their religious affiliation. So, I think it's really important to kind of make those connections and continue to make those connections. But something that's really important in the, to understand about big data is what some scholars like Susan Lee Starr call the data body, or Dan Boke, who's a historian, calls um, the data double. Or this is also something that Andre Brock talks about quite a bit in his work that the data projects all produce these doubles of ourselves that are datafied, that are based on the data that's collected about us. And those data bodies or those data doubles have various degrees of symmetry with us as people. So to take a really simple example, this is from the work of a scholar named Jose van Dyck. She's, she's Dutch and she's written some really great things about this. Um, there is an assumption in big data projects that first of all, everyone is being represented let's say on Twitter, which is not true. We know that's, that's not true. And that the way we represent ourselves on Twitter take, taken in aggregate is more accurate than let's say an ethnographic interview that might reveal something about the way we represent ourselves. And both of those things I think are really fundamental to understand about big data. It's not just the collecting practices, it's not even just the ability to aggregate things in a a mass scale and make real-time decisions about them, but it's also the ideology that accompanies it that says uh, the things that are being revealed through these projects are more true and more accurate, simply because one where they're based on things we're not necessarily giving over intentionally and they're based on putting lots of little bits of data together and looking at it that way um so that's kind of big data algorithm do either of you know where the word algorithm comes from i i is it like is it an arabic word yes
1: Ooh! Ooh surprise myself that. Like I pulled that off the very back of my mind. That's okay.
2: great. I mean there's a there's a there's a trick to knowing the words that start with al, like algebra and algorithm, are Arabic words. So the word algorithm actually comes from the Latinization of a Persian mathematician, geographer who lived in the ninth century before the common era in Baghdad. His name was Muhammad Ibn Musa al khwarizmi and then he wrote this treatise that the Latin title of was Algorithmi, that's how they translated his name, uh, de numero indorum, so algorithmies, uh, Indian numbers or Hindu numbers, okay. So... I I really like to start off and think through that example of where we get the word algorithm because it's an example of these hidden, erased histories that need to come back into the story of what we understand these technologies to be, but maybe even more importantly, what these technologies could be. And so when when I say when I ask where the term algorithm comes from, I'm not really interested in putting forth a notion of heritage or a kind of contest to see which culture invented what, right? That it, it quickly devolves into that, oh, the number zero comes from India. Oh, algebra comes from, from the Arab-speaking world. That can be important. It's important to make those interventions sometimes. But what I'm more interested in is to surface reminders of historical processes and kinds of interconnectedness that have been silenced uh, to use michelle Rolf Priot's terminology that just get written out of the story over and over again what are algorithms today well what they really are are a set of instructions to solve a particular predefined problem um So, the algorithm is important in my work because it always ties back to me, for me, to a larger set of concerns about governance and governmentality, which we can understand as to how conduct of people is guided. And what I think is that, or what I've posited in some of my work, is that we've shifted a little bit from a kind of conduct that focuses on telling people what to do. Um, If you think about what school was like probably for you and me, there's a lot of being told what to do. Uh, But we've shifted quite a bit from that in many places, although not everywhere, to writing (laughs) underlying instructions that are often not seen that Govern how we can or cannot act. So, to think of a really simple example, and this comes out very clearly in Ruha Benjamin's writing and Sasha Constanza Schock's writing as well. If you look at a, a form that you have to fill out online, if there's a radio button and you have to choose male or female, there's no ability to write in something else. Or even when, as in Facebook, you can choose lots of other sexual identities, gender identities, on the back end, and I didn't know this until I read about it uh, in Sasha a Shock's work. On the back end, Facebook has made the decision to still classify you as male or female. So that's a really good example of an underlying system of governance that's not visible to us but it's still doing the work of conducting our behavior online. The most interesting thing to me about algorithms is that those, uh, those sets of instructions for how to deal with information or bodies or whatever, they can be tweaked and they can also adapt based on the information coming in. That's what is now called machine learning. So my work engages again with the question of algorithms in a kind of sidelong or skewed unsettled way. I'm interested in surfacing the hidden histories of the algorithm and I also am interested in thinking through what has changed overall and what we think is normative or normal when it comes to how we should be governed. So what is algorithmic thinking? What is that all about? How does it apply much more widely than any particular algorithm and how that algorithm is deployed? So for instance, it seems to me that by and large, we think that decisions should be made through the collection, sorting, and classification of data on the one hand and through a set of processes that order them, in other words, the algorithm on the other, but Thinking that decisions should be made in that way, which a kind of a te- technocratic way of doing them, completely brackets out the question of politics, right? The question of how do we make space for different modes of organizing the collective? How do we ask who gets to speak? How do we get asked what the choices are? and any operation and why they're written in that way that gets bracketed out bracketed out when we think that algorithms or data sets are necessarily without politics or neutral or whatever the language is better at finding out what's true and accurate we completely sideline and get out the questions of who gets to make those decisions who gets to ask the question, who gets to decide what our choices are. And of course, that's just doing politics by other means. So I think that's kind of how I engage with those concepts.
0: So Sarita, you point out in particular, and I'm gonna quote you here actually, that most algorithms sort and classify in the background with little oversight into their operations. Algorithms working over time can produce latent variables, correlations that are taken to be meaningful, even though these variables were not built into the algorithm in the first place. So we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. Again, this is kind of a term, algorithmic bias, that I feel like gets thrown around a lot, without, a lot without much like technical explanation of what it really is. So how can computational systems like, al- like algorithms become biased? And how does such bias manifest in how technology is deployed?
2: Yeah, believe it or not, that's almost an easy question compared to the last ones. So, <laughs> systems can become biased in several different ways. One, a really important way is what is going into the algorithm. So, if the data that's being collected already have biases in them, and this is true about most of our public service data, you could think about data about welfare, data about health. Most of them have known biases in them. And if that data is being used to make other decisions, the biases will continue. They can also get amplified. A second way that bias can enter, and this is what I mean by latent variables, is in the United States, we have protected classes, right? You can't actually input data about race let's say if you're trying to find out about rates of crime or the if you're trying to make a prediction about what's the what's the likelihood that isabel is gonna default on her home loan race can't be a variable in this but what an algorithm will do is that it will find the solution with to any problem you set it in any way that it can surface a pattern so what it might start doing is that it will start using zip codes. It will start servicing this pattern that people in 11215 default on their home loans with a high percentage. Now, if it happens that 11215 is a predominantly Latinx neighborhood, it is going to make a correlation between race and rates of default. And then, and here's the really important part, use that correlation to decide who should be getting a home loan at what mortgage rate. So it is biased because even though it is not designed to use race to determine who pays what for their mortgages, it ends up tracking race. Uh, another really good example that's been widely popularized is uh, facial recognition systems that could not recognize the faces of Black women. This is the research of Joy Bulawamani and Timot Gibral's work because they were trained on sets. The facial recognition program was trained on a set that included almost no people of color. And so that raises a whole bunch of other really thorny questions. So one way to fix that problem would be to say, oh, well, let's, let's just include lots of black and brown people in the training data. But again, that is not exactly the right way of, to think about it because it's too narrow. If you do that, then you're also providing... Data for surveillance systems that are going to be used to detect crime. Is that really the road that we want to go down? Probably not. We would like the, this is an example from Ruha Benjamin's book. We would like the soap dispenser in the bathroom, right? Has this ever happened to you? You stick your hand under it and nothing comes out. <laughs> we would like <laughs> the soap dispensers to recognize my brown hand and please give me some soap. But we don't want that those same systems to recognize my face so that I can be arrested at a protest.
1: Right, so it all comes down to this question of like, what does it mean to like be included in these systems and what kind of inclusion if anything are we fighting for and what should we be resisting at the at the very same time? Um, that's often something I, I ask myself too. I guess I have another follow-up question to this. So when you talk about zip codes being used as proxies um, in algorithmic systems to identify people based on race or class or the combination of all those, who who are the people making those decisions, for example, to use zip codes as proxy, Is that also something that just kind of emerges from the algorithm or are there people and teams of yeah, human beings making these decisions. Where could we point? Where's that decision, these decisions being made?
2: The, the, the decision is being made to tell the algorithm, find out what is the likelihood that you are going to default on your home load. And then the secondary decision is being made about what kind of data the algorithm can have to make that decision. And since zip code, unless you are trained as a social scientist or you had to take a bunch of great history courses about the U.S., for most data scientists, they see zip code and they don't think anything. They think that's totally innocuous. But if you, the two of you, or I see zip code, we would immediately raise our hand up and say, "Um, do you know about the history of redlining in the United States and take it from there? so it's a number of cascading decisions and and to my mind the people who are deciding what data gets used what questions it can be asked uh those folks in general don't really have a good training in the history in history and critical race theory and the social sciences in general so they do not surface those problems they're also still mostly white so they don't have any experiential histories to draw on either to understand what's going on there
1: totally it's this kind of the god trick isn't that what donna Haraway said of objectivity that i feel like is so seeped into tech you know how You know, most of many people even understand how these systems work and its detachment from, as you said before, history and politics, even though, of course, these are this very declaration that, you know, tech is a political and objective is a political move. Right. But calling it squarely political, something that I think is lost in the conversation. And I think this leads us to um, our next question for you, which has to do with history directly. Um, and you brought up this really powerful point earlier about thinking about the Dutch East India Company as a very early big data collection um, apparatus. And I'm also thinking about um, Matthew Desmond's piece in the 1619 project, for the New York Times, where he talks about um, the development of the spreadsheet and that kind of behavioral data collection was really pioneered. Um, on the American plantation, right? Um, And so thinking about where the deeper time depth of how surveillance and data collection about people and populations by governments, by uh, private companies, by carceral institutions even, is is not new, but is really part and parcel to how power has long been doled out and, and exercised as a result. And so I was wondering if you could speak more about that history and think a bit about what is different about the circumstances and practices of surveillance uh, in our current times, but also what has remained constant about these uh, practices.
2: Yeah, that's also something that Simone Brown's work clearly brings up, that the history of surveillance, the way we understand data surveillance now, is really a history of managing slave populations. And that's clear, whether you're talking about Dutch plantation in Suriname, or the registers of slave ships in the Atlantic slave trade. I think what has stayed the same is this really fundamental question of how different people's lives are valued differently. This fundamental question of who gets to be protected and who needs to be watched is with us. We can see that all across the world. We can see it in Kashmir, which has been under curfew, lockdown, surveillance, free pass ban for, for a very long time now. We can see it in New York City, okay? I'm sure both of you have been following the policing of social distancing rules. So for those of you who aren't following it, In New York right now, there are a lot of people who are hanging out in parks, not really obeying social distancing, but the way those people are policed completely varies by geography and race. So in poorer neighborhoods, in black and brown neighborhoods, the police use violence with impunity, but in lower Manhattan they issue friendly warnings or whatever the case may be. And today, uh, Mayor de Blasio was just called out on this and he claims he's going to fix it. So at a base level, that's really what is staying the same. And you, you can also think about something else that's been with us for a long time and probably will be for a long time. The areas of the world that get to be the testing grounds for new surveillance technologies are the areas of the world that are colonized for instance historically fingerprinting was a invention of uh i think it was galton but it was certainly a eugenicist of some kind in order to make claims about racial hierarchies it was deployed against so-called criminals um in the British Empire, there are entire groups of people in India who were called the criminal tribes and classes, and they were forced to give their fingerprints as a way of controlling them. We know many of these groups now as the aboriginal residents of the subcontinent. So those two things are still with us. Uneven application of surveillance and laboratories, poor communities across the world as laboratories for new surveillance techniques. What is new? I think this is a good question because to me, what is new is that we have moved beyond just the visual. We've moved way beyond that Foucauldian model of the panopticon, right? The word surveillance, it's it's watching, right? Veil is from watch. We, We need kind of a new term because the apparatus through which things can be recorded, they involve all of the senses now. It's not just sight, it's also touch. There are, if you think about the whole community of wearables and what other applications of those might be, we can sense temperature, we can sense sweat, we can sense global positioning. All all the whole range of our senses are now involved in, in capture, as devices of capture. And so I think that raises these really, really new but fundamental mental questions about what is it okay to capture? And maybe even more importantly, when is it okay to capture things? And I think the COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example of that. It is a time in which people are suggesting and actually across the world, people are monitoring the temperature of workers coming in and out of offices. Um, When did we decide that that's okay to do? What's going to happen with all that data? Those are these big open questions that really haven't been resolved yet.
0: Yeah, it's been really interesting to hear about um, people citing um, more authoritarian governments' responses to COVID as, like, effective which mm-hmm. is kind of hard to argue with in some ways, because it is true that many other places responded better than us, but it's also been really interesting to see how data has been essential to those responses and like really, really intense, um, alarming uses of it. But that is something that we will get into shortly. And then I'm very excited to talk about, but to, to sort of go back before we go forward, In response to all of this, there have been, prior to COVID, legislative movements across the world aimed at limiting the power that tech companies have to surveil and monetize personal data. And these are are slated under data protection um, and and data privacy protection laws. And as you've written elsewhere, however, the right to sanctuary appears to short-circuit the spaces where life has already been configured as available for expropriation through perpetual wounding. So that quote that you've already brought up is something that we wanted to, to, to speak about when we're addressing this idea of protection, because we'd love to hear more about how the data economy already disproportionately impacts certain populations and who is actually the most vulnerable to the exploitative impulses of surveillance, while on the other hand, who actually has a lot to gain from it.
2: Yeah, I think this is a good empirical question. I want to know who is the most vulnerable and who has the most to gain because I don't think it's always obvious. I think we can make some educated guesses about who the most vulnerable are, and that will be those who have been oppressed in any community. So in the United States, uh, undocumented immigrants poor people in other places like India, Muslims, poor Muslims, um, Dalits, they will, they are already, it's not that they will, it's that they are already being disproportionately impacted by all sorts of legal and extra legal ways of monitoring what they do and stripping them of their right to privacy. We can also see the same thing happening very much and has happened. It's sanctioned legally to prisoners. But on the other hand, who is going to gain? I think that is really an open question. It's too simple to say these countries will lose, these countries will gain. It's even a little bit too simple to say these types of people will lose and these types of people will gain because, again, there are, there are going to be unexpected ways in which the technologies get used that we can't completely predict, even though we can see the larger lineaments through which all of this will, will unfold. But, you know, what I'm thinking about when I'm sort of subtly critiquing the idea of data privacy is this concept of privacy itself. It's not that privacy is bad. It's that historically, the way we've talked about and legislated about privacy has extended privacy only to certain groups of people. And I don't see any reason why that's going to change. In fact, I have already heard culturalist arguments about how certain kinds of people actually don't have a sense of privacy. Well, first of all, that seems short-sighted the examples that are given are, you know, they bathe in public or something like that. But, well, no, actually, they bathe in public with their clothes on, so they, they clearly have some sense of personal privacy. But more importantly, the implication of that seems to suggest that they don't need to have their privacy protected. Or in moments of crisis, or for those types of people deemed exceptions to the rule, prisoners, uh, the sick, in some historical instances women we we just we decided that they didn't have the right to privacy and so i think framing data protection in those terms is really really dangerous because there will always be exceptions that's very different than asking the question of what is the larger infrastructure of safety that we want to provide to everybody what are certain modes of collection that you should never be allowed to say yes to, no matter what. How do we carefully decide about how we can track a pandemic without at the same time feeding a gigantic surveillance apparatus? So I think really I'm thinking about this constant drumbeat of people whose who we as a society, we have decided that they are their lives are just worth less than ours. And you can think here about... Ashil Membe's work or Jasper Jes- Puar's work who has this really great phrase: "The right to maim." Who whose bodies are considered maimable? Who don't? Who doesn't get to have the same protections as everybody else? Uh, yeah, I think this. The point that you made that you brought up about
1: really. I guess leaning into the unexpected possibilities and and ways in which these technologies will emerge and surface and be used in the world in ways that we can't predict I think is that's a really important point to bring up and also I'm I'm totally I totally agree with your you, you call it a, a subtle critique of data privacy I'm but I'm right there with you and to <laughs> me it's not it's it's actually not it's not so subtle and I think there's another um, way that you kind of extend this, this point even further when thinking about how we as people individually and collectively can um, mobilize in response and in resistance to these surveillance um, systems. And so elsewhere, you have, have talked about troubling this idea of data protection, right? data privacy, and you've instead called for and we'll quote you again, because clearly you write so beautifully. We're going to quote you all all throughout these questions. You call for um, radical stances of refusal, which question data collection in the first place. And that line got me thinking about the work that um, activists and intellectuals are doing. I'm thinking about Data for Black Lives, Yashima Biller, who talks about abolishing big data altogether. And so I was wondering if we could talk a bit more about what this type of refusal of data collection can look like in practice because, you know, you brought up at the beginning of our conversation that oftentimes, you know, we kind of have to succumb to signing, you know, clicking the click wrap, right. In order to get access to these tech tech services that are most of our social lives. And frankly speaking, our identities are mediated through every day. So how can we, what does refusal look like? I guess. Um, And what can, I guess, we do on a practical level to challenge this idea of data protection as some data is going to be protected in such a way in the first place?
2: Yeah, I love the idea of abolishing big data because it does not mean abolish data. It because if we just go on the line of abolishing data, then then we won't have any thoughtful rubrics for how we want to sort and classify information but what abolishing big data means to me is to ask questions about who the data is for what questions it's designed to answer and in whose service those questions are being asked so recently at data and society we had this amazing speaker come through named Kenyon farrow who made this really good point about health data. Well, it's it's clear that we weren't getting information about COVID-related deaths and race, and we needed that information. But he made the point that without accompanying that demand for information with the equally important demand for providing better services, what do we want to see happen? All we would do is give a justification for the increased surveillance of communities of color. And I think that's what I mean by Refusal practically. Refusal really, for me, it comes from lots of places, but for me, it comes from the work of Audra Simpson, who's an Indigenous scholar who wrote this amazing book called Mohawk Interruptus. And what she says there is that refusing to give information is not just a no, but it's actually a kind of yes. It's a yes to building one's identity, sense of self, sense of community around other values. So you're absolutely right, Marcel, sometimes that refusal can look like harm, right? If you ever hear discourses about, well, why is that community doing that when this other thing would really help them a lot, that's what it looks like. But if you poke into that, if you dig a little deeper, there are other demands there. And I think it's the job of activists and scholars to surface and press for those other demands. That's what I think refusal looks like in in practice. It's not just saying, I don't want to be surveilled. That's a really, I I think that's kind of a non-helpful response. It's a very individualized response. It then will depend and produce an entire industry for which we pay not to be surveilled. It's it's already happening. Um, And then some people won't ever be able to do that. Instead saying, I don't want this type of question being asked about me in my community, but there's this whole other set of questions over here that we really want answered. That's what I think it needs to look like.
0: Well, this is definitely the a prime time for making demands for mm-hmm. changes and for different kinds of care and responsibility, especially in the face of data being collected. So I think that to to sort of wrap up this conversation, it would be great to talk actually about COVID. And I mean, this crisis has brought into even more stark relief, the entrenched social inequalities that we have come to unfortunately take for granted as, you know, quote, normal. And it has also uncovered the fact that under the auspices of racial capitalism, some lives are always considered more expendable than others. So for example, with regards to COVID, Apple and Google have recently teamed up to, to develop a contact tracing app um, mm-hmm. as a tool that can be used to stop the spread of the virus. So, and I mean, as I said before, I've heard about similar technologies being used in Singapore and a few other places. So could you talk more about the surveillance measures that are being implemented right now and you know how apps can be used um, maybe to ensure public safety and health without compromising personal data or further bolstering big tech power? Like, are these things mutually exclusive?
2: I will first say I am not an expert on contact tracing, but here is what I've been reading. So what I've been reading about is a couple of things. One, it is possible to use cell phone data in an anonymized, randomized way there's a scholar, I think he's at the University College London, named Michael Vale, who developed a way that phones, you, I think using Bluetooth, emit random patterns, and then a, uh, and then you can trace whether two phones have been in close proximity with one another and alert those people that they have, if one of those people comes down with COVID. So that's a way to use the phones that completely protects the privacy of the people with the phones. It does not require names. It doesn't require location data, any of that stuff. Of course, there's a problem there because it relies on people having the most up-to-date lovely working cell phones. So already there'll be a whole swaths of populations who, who just wouldn't get the information. Secondly, in the Indian context, where a similar app has been rolled out called Arogya Setu, it's very similar to Singapore's Trace Together, Um, there are other modes of collecting data using cellular tower data, which isn't as granular, but that it also, also doesn't target individuals. So I think on the one hand, there are probably other kinds of tech solutions out there that we need to grasp for And that can only happen if we get out of this really, really harmful binary of either we protect your privacy or we keep you safe from a pandemic. We need to get out of that binary. Um, Secondly, on the question of the surveillance measures being implemented at this time, I think what we're seeing is that yes, surveillance measures are being implemented. If we don't want those surveillance measures to be implemented, I think we need to surface, first of all, ask different questions, and second of all, surface actual evidence about what is helping pandemic spread that's not relying on boosterism by makers of these contact tracing technologies. I mean, one thing I read in the paper today is that Um, During the HIV epidemic, there were contact tracers in New York. This is before the era of cell phones. I'd like to know, I'd like some historian to tell me how they did their work. I'm not saying we have to go back to pen and paper, but I'm saying that there might be lessons to be learned from the HIV crisis that that we could use in the current moment. And finally, to the question you were asking before about refusal, There are lots of other harms going on. I'm not saying that the COVID pandemic is not important, if not the most important harm, but there are lots of other harms going on. And I want equal attention paid to them. For instance, the one that I'm tracking really closely right now is um, racial attacks, hate speech against Asians because of this whole rhetoric about the Wuhan flu, the Chinese flu and all of that. So in addition to thinking about protecting our privacy, I mean, what are the other kinds of harms that are un- happening under the guise of COVID that we also need to be vigilant about? So that's, I, I don't think that is a very satisfying answer to your question, because I don't, I'm not expert enough in these fields. But at least from what I've read, there are definitely ways to contact, trace, and maintain protections there's definitely the encroachment of a giant surveillance infrastructure that needs to be vigilantly fought against, largely in the court. And then there are definitely issues that are just being swept to the sidelines because of a very narrow focus on this one particular issue. That's kind of how I would parse it.
0: I think that's a great answer, especially because... Um, I think that a big sort of just like ontological sh- shift that people need to make, including myself, is is realizing that it's not one or the other. It's not reducing the contact of, of the virus or having privacy, and that we have to be able to think more creatively about what a middle ground might entail. But thank you. Yeah, thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for making time to speak with us Um today and um sharing your really illuminating insights it's really such a joy and i'm um excited to listen back to this episode because i feel like i've learned so much uh, from you in this episode so yeah i did th- our episode has i guess come to an end we're speaking with sarita amrude director of research at data and society if people want to follow you and your work like what's the best way for people to get um more familiar with the, what you do sarita
2: uh let's see good question it shouldn't be such a stumper i'm not really <laughs> twitter right now i would normally say twitter but i needed to take a break from twitter Same. i think you can find me on the data and society website and on points which is their medium. Blog posting feature and of course you can find me on Twitter at Sarita Amrute if you message me I will certainly respond and I will be back in, on Twitter sometime in the future so you can probably find me there amazing. thank you
1: so much amazing okay cool so yeah until next time goodbye. bye thank you bye. well Check out
2: what Love is all I bring in amikaki suit and tip.